Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Anthony Painter. I'm Director of the Action and Research Centre here at the um, RSA and delighted to welcome you to all, all to today's special event. Um, before we begin, could I ask you to check your mobile phones are switched to silent? We're filming today's uh, event and live streaming over the web, so welcome to everybody joining us online. And a reminder that the Twitter hashtag is RS, hashtag RSA Europe. This was deemed to be preferable to RSA collapse for some reason. <laughs> now, housekeeping notes is over. It's my great pleasure to welcome today's speaker, Ian Kearns. Um, Ian is a journalist and co-founder of the European Leadership Network and former deputy director of the Institute of Public Policy Research Think Tank. He has over 20 years experience uh, working on security and foreign policy issues and has published on a wide range of topics including British relations with the US, nuclear non-proliferation, the European Union and the security situation in Northern Ireland. Um, He joins us today to share his thinking from his latest book, Collapse. Um, In the book, Ian offers his take on the threats facing Europe in a post-Brexit world. Um, Despite doubts cast over the future of the European Union, not much has actually been said about what the disintegration of the EU might look like. Um, Ian shares his view on the possible events that could tip the EU into a state of collapse and the ideals that must be defended for a brighter, more stable future in Europe. These are all big and timely uh, issues, not to mention perplexing. So we're looking forward to hearing Ian's analysis. I have to say, when you first approach the book, um, it has the look of a dystopian sort of thriller to it. But when you go into it, you realize this is deadly serious. Um, It's grounded in an exceptionally strong analysis um, and evidence. And most worryingly of all, there is a plausibility to this this book. And Ian will explain more about that. After Ian's opening presentation, I'll be asking him a few follow-up questions before we'll open it out to the floor for some discussion. And so there'll be plenty of time uh, for your questions before we wrap up at two o'clock. So that's enough for me for now. Let's get started and welcome Ian Kearns. Thank you very much indeed for that introduction. Um, The first thing I'd like to say is um, the very first sentence of this book is that the book is a warning, not a prediction. Um, Having said that, you don't write 75,000 word warnings if you don't think they're necessary. And so I think that my founding assumption in writing the book is that there is a very realistic possibility that the European Union could collapse. And I wanted to think through um, how that might happen, what the uh, processes might be, what the consequences would be. um, And... Although I am somebody who is a passionate believer in politics and the ability for people to change things, I arrived in the process of writing the book, I think in a position where, I suppose I'd describe it as uh, optimism of the political will, um, but the opposite in terms of the intellect. I can't quite persuade myself uh, that the European Union can find a way out of its current predicament. Um, I want to say a few things about the um, thesis of the book, um, and then I'll go on to some specific aspects of Trump, because I've linked this to the age of Trump, um, and then say something about the wider context uh, in which Trumpism is operating, um, and outline the various stages of the the book. I will at various points do some considerable violence to the argument in the book itself in order to compress this down into 15 to 20 minutes, but hopefully we can pick up a little bit more detail uh, in comments and questions afterwards. So the thesis of the book, that the European Union is today extremely vulnerable. That's proposition number one. Proposition number two is that it's possible to identify Uh, some all-too-plausible scenarios, some trigger scenarios, that lead us from this state of uh, anxiety and vulnerability to actual collapse. Third proposition of the book is that such a collapse would be an unmitigated disaster that would not only lead to economic chaos, though it would, uh, it would lead to a nationalist-fueled politics of scapegoating, Uh, across many parts of Europe. It would lead to the rise of protectionism in terms of trade (coughs) politics, protectionism within Europe uh, in place of the single market. 
and that it would also lead, and I'll come back to this in comments later, it would also lead to the destruction of NATO because it's not possible to see the destruction of the European Union in isolation from the solidity, political, social, economic underpinning of NATO, all of which would lead to a major increase uh, in influence for Russia in Eastern Europe and also uh, China, which is a growing footprint, particularly in Eastern uh, Europe. Uh, so in terms of liberal politics, what you'd actually see, I think, in that context is a big advance for the politics of reaction and for the politics of authoritarianism and a growth in the influence of powers on the international scene who are friends of no liberal values um, uh, or democracy. Um, and I think the fourth proposition in the book really is that unless we change direction, that is the future we are headed toward. Uh, and you can imagine that living in a country where people are just obsessed with Brexit, and I, for very good reasons, it's obviously a profoundly important question for our country, but the, the, the total myopia, really, in terms of thinking about what else is going on in the continent, it's like nothing else is happening uh, elsewhere, and that we're just, we, we conduct the whole conversation about Brexit as though what we do here is not relevant to the rest of Europe, that uh, the rest of Europe is this kind of solid entity that we're negotiating with. Um, and also somehow, particularly the Brexiteers, that we can just count on having good trading relationships all over the world after we've done Brexit. Uh, again, just kind of not commenting on the huge turbulence that's happening uh, uh, elsewhere in Europe and around the world. Now, on this point of vulnerability, let me start with a few comments about Trump, because there are two sides to the European Union's vulnerability. Some of it is the external context, and some of it's internal to the European Union. Externally, uh, there are threats to the European Union's stability from the east. Uh, the migration challenge from the south has been very pressing and significant. But astonishingly, or perhaps it's no longer astonishing, I don't know, maybe we're psychologically getting used to Donald Trump, but um, I, would, I would say astonishingly also threats from the west uh, to the European Union. Trump is not just bad news for the European Union, he is a direct threat to it. He's engaged in the biggest populist questioning of the US commitment to Europe since the Second World War. He sees votes, frankly, in alienating American voters from Europe. Um, he has been openly hostile to the European Union. He welcomed the Brexit vote. Uh, he encouraged others to leave the European Union. He welcomed Farage to Trump Tower shortly after his election. He has called the European Union a vehicle for German interests. Uh, his former lieutenant-in-chief, Steve Bannon, has been touring Europe talking about the construction of an illiberal international and praising politicians like Marine Le Pen. Uh, his trade representative, Peter Navarro, suggested that the US and Germany should do bilateral trade deals, uh, a bilateral trade deal with one another, striking at the heart of what the European Union exists to do in terms of trade policy. Uh, and when Macron was sitting in the Oval Office, Trump said the same thing to him. Why don't you just leave the European Union and we'll do a really good tra trade deal with France? He is trying, if he was receiving a receptive audience, to destroy the European Union. Um, his positions on the Middle East are a problem for Europe because his questioning of a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine, his lack of uh, any kind of diplomatic strategy to try and stabilize Iraq or Syria, um, uh, his move of the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, all of these are part of a Trump policy in the Middle East, which is really pouring oil on the flames of a fire that's already burning fiercely. And the problem, uh, he's also cut the aid budget, by the way, of the United States. And the problem for Europe is that all of that helps to feed what is a roiling mass of instability and conflict to, the, to Europe's south, which may result in much bigger flows of people to Europe, which is a prospect the populists and nationalist politicians in Europe absolutely relish. They know that during the Brexit vote, a key point of the campaign, when those posters went up with lines of refugees and... Uh, and so on, the general, the general perception being created that it was a totally chaotic scene out there in Europe. We know that that 
that period in the campaign saw a rise of 5 to 6% in the Leave vote, uh, and other uh, populist Eurosceptic politicians around Europe have noted the potency of that issue, as you will have observed. Trump is also uh, pursuing a protectionist agenda in terms of global trade. Uh, it's not just the trade war with China which is unfolding, it's also uh, a systematic attack on the World Trade Organization. The one thing I, I would suggest you all think about when you hear the Brexiters uh, talk about we'll go back to WTO rules is that Trump is actually trying to destroy the WTO. The United States may not actually be in it very much longer. Uh, there may be no regime in place that's covering global trade. May, other powers may still be part of it. But that's the scale of change. Now, the problem, again, for the European Union is, and as I'll <coughs> say in a moment, the European Union needs... Uh, a positive global economic picture in order to re regrow its own economy, which, although it's growing now, it's not growing spectacularly, and it's coming out of basically a decade's worth of really poor economic performance, and in some parts of Europe, depression and very serious recession. Um, and so if Trump's trade policy actually triggers an international context which damages the prospects for Eurozone exports, that again will, will feed into a declining economic picture in Europe, which will again stoke resentment and, and be a source of opportunity for populist politicians. Um, I won't say more about what Putin is up to and what's going on in the South. I think uh, we could always pick up some of that a little bit more. But basically, the external picture is threats from the West, South, and East. Internally, I think one of the big problems is that the Eurozone has been run according to a fairly rigid, rigid economic dogma. This idea that uh, everybody's spending must be strapped within sort of 3% uh, guidelines either side, um, very tight rules on, on public spending. Um, what that has done um, is it's straight-jacketed mainstream politics. Everybody on the centre-right and centre-left who signs up to the Eurozone rules has effectively abandoned fiscal policy as something they can operate at national level. level. They are more or less, uh, and, and I think the, the crucially significant point about that is that populists are able to say, all these guys are the same. Whether you're on the centre-left, centre-right, mainstream, they're all the same. And if it's not working for you as a voter, as a worker, as you know, a citizen, then you begin to resent that. And what that straitjacketing of the Eurozone rules has done is it's basically created an opportunity for the populists to say, we're the only people that are different. We're the only people offering you anything different. These guys are just tweaking around at the edges within the same framework. The second thing, the problem with the economic situation is that the Eurozone crisis turned what should have been a problem between debtors and creditors into a problem between nations and states inside Europe. So that the single currency, which was supposed to be the symbol, the ultimate symbol of European solidarity, has actually become a deep, deep source of political division. You know, there were, at the height of the crisis, there, there was vicious propaganda being put out in German newspapers about lazy Greeks and so on. And in Greece, you had cartoons with uh, people wearing swastikas sending work, Greek workers into gas chambers. That was going on in Greece's daily newspapers. And that's just one example of many that I cite uh, in the book. What the politics of some countries needing to be bailed out and other countries uh, needing to do the bailing out has created as a deeply divided Europe. Despite the fact that much of the money that flowed from countries like Germany and France to help the bailouts was actually only given to bail out the German and French banks who were exposed to Greek debt in the first place. That's a point that seems to be lost on most of the German political class, or rather it's not lost on them, they're just not telling their voters uh, about it. So big internal economic uh, problems. Uh, Brexit hasn't led to a political contagion elsewhere in Europe, but what the Brexit campaign showed was what a populist uh, uprising could do by exploiting the weaknesses in the European Union itself, the failure to manage migration, the economic chaos, all of that was used against the European Union and other populists elsewhere have noticed it. Um, another problem in terms of the internal dynamics of the, of the European Union is that there's been a huge amount of talk about reform, 
President Macron's suggestion of a fiscal union, a banking union, all kinds of talk about reform. Um, without going into any detail here, but it's all laid out in the book, the basic problem is these reforms haven't gone far enough. They're nowhere near far enough. Um, what the European Union seems to want is credit for, have, for making progress compared to where it was yesterday, instead of whether it's made enough pro progress to be ready for the challenges that might come tomorrow. And there's a reality out there which sooner or later is going to impact the European Union's institutions. Um, and, and so reforms haven't gone far enough. And one of the reasons for that is the level of division. It's a European disunion, not a European Union. Sanctions policy on Russia has to be renewed every six months because basically there's a huge uh, divide inside the European Union between countries that want them and people that don't. It, might, it would be possible simply to say, we'll, take, we'll get rid of these sanctions when the Russians get out of Ukraine. That's why they were introduced. But that doesn't happen. They're renewed every six months because a lot of countries don't like those sanctions. A uh, country like Italy, for example, wants them to be removed. Um, complete disagreement on how to manage the migration crisis. It's chaotic and national governments pursue their own solutions because they can't agree a Europe-wide uh, solution. There's talk about increasing European defence cooperation uh, in the light of Trump uh, being very questioning of the commitment to NATO. Um, but the fact is that Europeans don't agree on that at all. Some countries like Ireland and Finland in the European Union are, uh, badger themselves as neutral. Uh, um, others, like France, uh, you know, are much more uh, serious military power and from time to time have shown willingness to use military power outside their own country. Germany, for historical reasons, much more reluctant and every single time uh, the German military is going to be used outside Germany, there has to be a vote in the Bundestag. The basic argument is it's a European disunion. That's the picture that we're in. And that's the context in which you then need to step back and think, what are the trigger scenarios that could lead to collapse from here? In the book, I outline six. I could have gone on, frankly. And the terrifying prospect is that they all feed off each other and that the European Union needs a hell of a lot to go right and only some of this to go wrong. So to give you some examples, one would be President Erdogan in Turkey decides to, he doesn't like the deal he's getting from the European Union at the moment, so he switches back on the flow of migrants. Because the reason why the heat went out of the crisis was that Erdogan basically agreed to keep the migrants that were arriving in large numbers in Turkey, in Turkey, in return for payments he receives from the European Union. Every few months that deal flares up and there's a huge row about it. If he were to switch the uh, flow of migrants back on into Europe, we would have that flow happening again. You would move from a Europe of free movement to a Europe of uh, borders with fences, barking dogs and searchlights, which was already happening before that deal was struck. The problem with that is it leads directly to an upsurge in populist politics in other parts of Europe because that's the one issue that we know already and we can see really drives a big swing towards Eurosceptic parties. The idea that Europe's kind of falling apart, not managing the situation properly. Um, another scenario would be a, Euro, uh, a Eurosceptic breakthrough in the Eurozone core. Now, uh, arguably we've had that in Italy. What people, uh, and there was a period right there at the beginning after the coalition government was formed in Italy when the bond markets got very nervous um, and it looked like there was going to be the onset potentially of another euro crisis. A lot of people have taken their eye off the ball and think that's now gone away. At the moment, the Italian coalition is negotiating its first budget. And on the basis of that budget, that will determine the nature of the relationship with eurozone leaders. Will the Italian government agree to stay within Eurozone rules or not. So that's a, a surging crisis that could happen. If you get the onset of a new crisis in the Eurozone because a major country like Italy is, agree, is, is um, seen to be borrowing too much by the markets and then the markets stop lending to Italy, you will see Italy unable to borrow on international markets and it will be potentially driven to the exit door of the Euro. That, as I'll come on to in a moment, could lead to all kinds of other consequences. But that Eurosceptic breakthrough in the Eurozone core is another scenario. A third, which is not commented on very much, is if you take a uh, um, step back and take a look at the Catalan crisis, it's possible to see a secession uh, in that particular crisis as a, a direct lit road from there to a, a Eurozone crisis. Catalonia is the wealthiest part of Spain. Uh, if it were to leave Spain, there would be a huge question mark over the rest of Spain's ability to service its debt. 
which again could cause uh, uh, a crisis in terms of lack of uh, ability of the Spanish government to borrow on international markets, and that could lead, again, to a crisis on such a scale that drives Spain to the exit door of, uh, of the euro. That's not to say that they're choosing it, it's that they're being pushed there by the markets in the way that Greece was pushed very close uh, to the edge last time. Um, those are, uh, are you know, examples that people don't talk about necessarily very much. The, the more obvious ones, actually, are just a recession uh, or a new financial crisis. Now, I, I've started actually counting now on a week-by-week -week basis the number of eminent and very serious people who are warning as loud as they can possibly warn that another financial crisis is coming and they are, I, I'm picking up pieces at the rate of six or seven a week, and I'm talking about from people who are former prime ministers, uh, heads of the IMF, other uh, serious, serious economists with global reputations. Um, and were that to happen, it would effectively topple a whole number of European banks that are still extremely fragile after the last crisis. And because the doom loop still exists between governments and banks in Europe, uh, essentially have this situation, this sort of two-way situation where um, take a country like Italy. Um, if, it, um, if it's not able to borrow in the international markets, the price of its bonds, of Italian government bonds, collapses. Who are the biggest owners of Italian government bonds? The Italian banks. And so you see a situation in which, in, from the government domain to the banking domain, that doom loop still exists. The bank balance sheets would be destroyed. The Italian banks would go bankrupt. The Italian government would be bankrupt. Uh, if you see it the other way around, if there's a global financial crisis uh, and it takes down the Italian banks as a consequence of the still global linkages which exist, the Italian government would have to try and step in and do a bailout. It can't do a bailout because it's already got a huge debt-to-GDP ratio. Bankruptcies in the banks would bankrupt the government. A bankrupt government would bankrupt the banks. That's the doom loop. Um, and so you can see that just either of those economic uh, developments would cause... Um, potentially cause the collapse of the single currency. Um, a last uh, example I'll just give you is Macron. Macron's idea of a fiscal union. Bold. He's the one politician on the European scene who seems to understand the scale of the crisis. He's even described it as a European civil war, the scale of the division that exists. And he's been very, very clear and explicit that he sees a potential for the European Union to collapse. However... His solution for a fiscal union, which is even tighter control, uh, really, fiscal policy around Europe, um, is completely unsellable in a country like Italy. He can't get it past the Germans. And all he's done by floating the idea publicly is say to the markets, look, I've called for a fiscal union and I've got no takers. The Germans won't go there with him. And what that tells the markets, I think, in the heat of a crisis is, this is not going to happen. You could, they're not going to stand together. The solidity is not there. The solidarity is not there. Now, moving on to the collapse. Uh, and how long have I got left, Anthony? Maybe? Two, three minutes. Okay. On the collapse, the central argument of the book on, on the collapse itself is that this could not be a managed process. It would be an unmanaged route. And just take an example of a country being driven out of the euro. There would be um, contagion, to other parts, to other parts of uh, the Eurozone. So if Italy goes, everybody will be saying, if the Italians can leave, why should I believe that Spain uh, is still going to be in the Euro tomorrow? What you have to understand is that anybody that leaves the single currency, that, uh, the new currency that they introduce will be devalued relative to the Euro. So if you're holding assets in Spain and you're watching what's going on in Italy, you're thinking, I'm getting out of the Eurozone because if Spain goes as well, my, you know, 100 billion euros over there in Spain is going to be worth about 45 billion euros tomorrow. You will get huge capital flight. Uh, you'll get competitive currency devaluations when countries have left. Uh, you'll get accusations of unfair trading practices to devalue to make exports more competitive within Europe. Uh, and that's what leads to the rise of protectionism. Um, and as I said earlier, the, uh, the context of that is then you would, then, you would need to, to think about European politics as taking on the form of a kind of Trumpian dystopia, where the Germans and the Italians would be at each other's throats, the French and the Germans would be at each other's throats, um, and all of the old animosities which still lurk 
beneath the surface of European politics would be wound up and used ruthlessly by the nationalist politicians. And so the values that are set out in the EU treaties of a commitment to humanity, tolerance, pluralism, all of that uh, would become questioned. In particular, it would not be the case that just the elites who'd been running the European Union would be totally discredited if it collapsed. I mean, clearly that would be the case. But a really important thing that people of a liberal persuasion should understand, I think, is that the populists argue that it's pluralistic institutions within societies which have produced this weakness. In other words, they argue that these leaders who've been running the European Union have either been unwilling to do something to change the situation in the past, or they've been unable because power's divided all over the place. What you've got to imagine is a politician like Nigel Farage coming along and saying, let's stop all this, just give me the power, I'll sort it out. What we need here is some strong leadership. That's where the politics of this goes. It doesn't just go to nationalist politics. It goes to a direct attack on pluralistic and liberal institutions and the underpinning values of tolerance and pluralism that exist there. And it would also, of course, in this post-EU situation, be very difficult for any kind of pan-European cooperation to take place on anything else. And that would have security implications. And I'll, I'll finish on this, this point. Um, you would have, at one level... Uh, all of the cooperation, we see this now in the Brexit debate. We had a warning this week from the police chief's council here in the UK uh, on the European arrest warrant on things like uh, crime, cross-border crime, on terrorism, on migration, trafficking, all of that, trafficking of weapons, trafficking of people. European cooperation would break down. That would make us all less effective in dealing with it, and we would see the effects on our streets. We would feel the consequences on our streets. I said earlier that NATO wouldn't survive this... Uh, European Union collapse. That's because in a context of this kind of post-EU politics and this kind of post-EU trade protectionism, where people are throwing stones uh, at each other, it's inconceivable that the European publics are then going to be told, actually, if one of us is attacked, we'll honour the collective defence guarantee in the North Atlantic Treaty. And Putin, whatever one thinks of him, is not an idiot. And he'll be watching that with glee. In fact, that's what he's trying to engineer with the disinformation campaigns and hybrid warfare tactics that he uses. Now, ask yourself, if the European Union is gone and NATO has either gone or its credibility is completely shot to bits, what do we have in Europe? Actually, what we have in structural terms is a return to the balance of power. You have the UK in the, in the northwest of Europe, Turkey in the southeast. You have <coughs> Germany in the centre maybe with two or three smaller countries in a kind of Deutschmark zone in the middle. Uh, you have Russia, you have increasing Chinese uh, footprint. Question mark around France, whether it tries to sort of stay to close to Germany or whether it tries to lead a kind of club med group of southern European countries, but there's very little evidence that it would be able to pull that off. You would have a return to the balance of power structure that we had for several centuries before the end of the Second World War. Um, and you would also, I think, have that... Um, in that context, um, points on, whereas in the Cold War we had very clear dividing lines, in this context we would just have grey areas. There are no agreed dividing lines about where Russian influence starts and stops and where, how much Germany would choose to contest that in Eastern Europe, who, whether it's going to be the Turks or the Russians or the Chinese who are going to be most influential uh, in the Balkans. We also, since the end of the Cold War, have allowed all of our conflict prevention mechanisms that we built during the Cold War to make sure it stayed cold, we have allowed all of those to atrophy. So we don't have conflict prevention mechanisms in place. And that means we do, frankly, although David Cameron got ridiculed for hinting at this during the Brexit campaign, we actually do face a threat to peace in that situation. And it's only people in the west of Europe who live in a geopolitically sheltered situation who find that far-fetched. If you go to anywhere in Yugoslavia or Georgia or Ukraine or any, uh, lots of other places across eastern, central, southeastern Europe, war is not something you read about in history books. It's something that's been happening and having consequences. And so that's the kind of Europe we would be looking at and perhaps we can talk about what we need to do to avoid it, but thank you. <laughs> Told you it was challenging, <laughs> yet plausible. Um, 
we could have a split screen here, Ian, um, and we could pan over to um, Salzburg, where the EU27 are just polishing off their Wiener schnitzel mm -hmm. and red wine, um, and now starting to take seriously the conversation around Brexit, which they've now let on to the agenda above item 20, um, and are discussing what the end game strategy is for the negotiations with um, the, the UK. Um, and my question, I, I guess, to you about, about the whole Brexit situation, um, and I'm trying not to be parochial in this from a European perspective, is have they missed a canary in the coal mine? Um, and has the strategy of seeking to quarantine Brexit, which is effectively what they have done, been the right one? Um, was there a different and more generous strategy that could have been pursued? Could they address some of the issues, as you, as you highlighted, around concern around uh, migration and so on, that were brought up in a specific historical context, in a specific place, a, a specific culture in the UK? But could they more readily sought to confront some of those issues and, and realise, actually, that, that, that Brexit was the beginning, potentially the beginning, of a, of, of a chain reaction? Or has the quarantine strategy, from your perspective, been the right one, given the potentials that you talked about? I think had I been one of the leaders of the European Union dealing with the issue, it would have been difficult to do it differently because the issue highlights the kind of bind that the European Union is in. Because um, if they don't quarantine it, but they're, as it were, receptive to it and try and produce the best economic and political outcome, their real fear is that other countries will just look at that and say, see, it's absolutely possible, and uh, so we'll, we'll go as well. Yeah. And that they they start a process where there is then Brexit contagion. Um, that's their fear. So that tells you something about how vulnerable they really know their situation is. Yes. Um, and so to have to embraced it differently, it might, I mean, rationally, it would have produced a better outcome for us and it would produce a better outcome for workers uh, uh, and economic activity in the Eurozone. But um, politically, it could, e it could easily have had a very uh, negative impact. So. Do you think, I mean, do you think looking back that uh, establishing freedom of movement as a fundamental principle of the EU ultimately ended up being the right course as opposed to, you know, a desirable goal? Um, In the context of conversation about potential collapse and so on, as, as, as opposed to the sanctity of the internal single market? Well, I think um, one of the features of the Brexit debate here, which hasn't been discussed enough, is that um, there have been a whole series of measures we could have done to a to stop flows of people or to send people back within the current rules of the European Union and that other countries have made greater use of. So we've had a particular debate about free, free movement here, which has been a distorted one based upon decisions by the British government here not to use powers that were available to it to address this challenge. And so um, now that's not to say, I mean, I think the external context is crucial to this. You know, if you're in a relatively stable global economic situation, um, if you haven't got large flows of migrants coming in, and if you had had uh, internally uh, a Eurozone in which growth had been reasonably evenly distributed, that's one context in which to have free movement. If you've got a declining uh, global economic situation or a very de destabilized one, if you've got some parts of the Eurozone, like in Germany, growing flat out, and you've got others that are frankly still in depression, um, which triggers movements of people from one place to another. Um, all of that, it changes the politics and with migration coming in. And of course, in the public mind, one of the tricks the populists have pulled off spectacularly successfully is to fuse the issue of uh, re refugees, uh, confuse it with economic migrants, and to link both to uh, terrorism, which has made it an absolutely toxic political combination. And, and that sort of touches on a theme that you, you alluded to, which is this, this, this sort of... Uh, this interaction between flexibility and solidarity and you know, on, on the issue of migration in a situation of a, of a global financial crash, an economic crisis, the European Union wasn't quite able to adopt the sort of principles of solidarity quickly enough, um, you know, the, the stability mechanism and so on, banking union, it, it kind of acts in the right way as the, as the last act rather than, rather than the first, um, and wasn't able either, and you advocate a more flexible um, um, form of fiscal union where, where fiscal policy is managed um, in, in, in the countries themselves, but wasn't able to adopt the flexibility you might need to ride out significant crises 
crises. The question is, is there a means of the European Union getting out of this falling betwixt and between flexibility and solidarity and choosing one or the other? Or ultimately, are they have ended up the, the only position that you fundamentally can do, in which case your, your, you know, your, your, your sort of fear that it will go towards sort of structural collapse becomes a very live and real one. I think they've got themselves into the worst possible position where they are demanding solidarity, as it were, in the sense of um, everybody playing by a certain set of rules, um, and then when, but, but not going so far that when a crisis happens that there's enough solidarity that it doesn't become a question mark over the actual uh, continued existence of the single currency. Yeah. So, you know, it's... Um, the one thing that I would want everybody to understand is that... Um, Absolutely nothing structural or important about the management of the single currency has changed since the last crisis. None of the reform measures introduced, none of them, have taken a replay of the exact same scenario off the table. In other words, a major country getting into problems where the markets have got concerns about the ability to sustain their debt, driving them to the edge of the euro, you immediately trigger them, it will overwhelm. A country the size of Italy would just overwhelm the rescue mechanisms that exist. You would immediately be back to late night summits in Brussels about whether Merkel was going to write a check, whether everybody else was going to, whether the Italians were going to um, suck up another five or ten years of austerity. And, you know, in all of that, um, that, that really real enmity between nations, you know, that you, you Italians are lazy or corrupt. We're not bailing you out. You know, you Germans have been running the Eurozone for the last X number of years in your own interests and nobody else's. That toxic politics would all flow back. Uh, in fairness to your leaders, what they've, you know, the, the journey they've embarked on is a very tough one. I mean, you're looking at historical examples of sort of um, tron, transcontinental policies, you know, the success rates of, of, are, are very few. The United States is probably you know, the, 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 the most relevant one in, 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 in the modern era. But even the United States with... Uh, a degree of patriotism and uh, a sense of um, demos that accompanied the political institutions. You know, it took a civil war, let's be honest, in order for the United States to be um, to, 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 to get into a sort of its modern form that has sustainability and legitimacy. Um, what they're trying to do is incredibly hard, and I wonder whether we're being too too critical of the path that they've they've, they've set on. And, and ultimately, they have shown some flexibility at the critical times, and they, they they could do again. Do you think there is that sort of salvation where there is a muddle through that gets them to a better place? I honestly can't see it. Uh, I wish I wish it would. So look, I am a passionate pro-European. You know, I'm not a Eurosceptic. I'm a passionate pro-European who is trying to issue a warning to say, if we don't change... I mean, what I'm really pointing to is the need for a debate on how we reform the European Union to make it capable of survival. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, one of the things I argue in the book is that we, need a, we should scrap the Fiscal Compact Treaty, which ties everybody into spending limits, and replace it with a new treaty which would decentralise fiscal policy and put it back at national level. And that what you would do to make sure that the whole Eurozone was properly managed is you'd, you'd have a, in that treaty a commitment to run counter-cyclical fiscal policies. That is when the economy is growing well and receipt, tax receipts are growing nicely, that you cut back on public spending when you're in a downturn, you increase public spending to try and stabilise the economic situation. I think that would be sensible economically, but what it would do politically is it would open up the space again in mainstream politics for centre-right and centre-left to disagree with each other in a fundamental way about fiscal policy in some really quite wide margins and to sell different propositions to the electorate, which would have the effect of then squeezing the populists and would no longer leave them as the only people able to say we've got the only alternative. And so... That, for me, is one of the tragedies of Brexit, that there is a huge debate to be had about the way the European Union needs to change to make itself secure for the rest of the 21st century, and we won't be part of it. We're, we're leaving. We could have been a powerful voice in that. I just wonder, though, whether the European Union has been lucky in its, in its adversaries. You know, in, in a sense, Trump and Putin are, are kind of useful, aren't they? Because if you wanted to um, build a, a narrative and ethos around being not Trump and not Putin, that in itself 
presents a possible galvanizing mission for the European Union. We do things differently. We are rules-based. We are lovers of, of freedom and human rights and an international order um, and an international cooperation to solve the big challenges we all, we all face. Could that be strong enough to push back on, on, on the forces that are pulling the European Union apart? I think it's, it's absolutely crucial that the European Union uses all of those liberal values and rules-based system and so on. Um, it's got to put a flag in the ground and say the European Union stands for something. Now, this is where the issue of um, what's going on in Hungary and Poland is actually quite important because, you know, effectively, Orban in Hungary is just, you know, he's not paying any attention to any of the so-called values in the European Union Treaty and nothing is happening to him as a consequence. Now, that's because some people fear a backlash, that if you got really tough and told the Hungarians they were suspended from the uh, EU, all their voting rights were suspended and so on, that you'd actually get a, a nationalist, populist backlash in Hungary. But by pursuing that strategy, you're effectively saying the EU is, actually doesn't stand for any of the things which yes. you've just listed. Yes. So it then appears to be, in terms of political ideology and mobilising values, it appears to be a con you know, contentless uh, proposition. So I think you know, you've, got, um, you've got that problem for the European Union. But the other thing I'd say is that, you know, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, it's not a kind of fascist argument that you have to make the trains run on time or nobody's going to be interested in democracy. But what I am saying is there are tens of millions of Europeans who are living in appalling economic conditions. We have got nearly 50% youth unemployment rate still in parts of Southern Europe. If you look at the Italian election, where the populists did best, we're in the areas with the highest levels of unemployment, there's a massive economic dimension to this, which I think, if you're going to go to the people, I think you can't go to them and say, we're the only ones defending democracy, liberal values, human rights, and all the rest of it. We know your economy sucks and you've got no future, but isn't this great? We can't do that. There's got to be an economic story that we're selling to these people, and it's got to be a real one about advancing opportunity within the Eurozone. Yeah. An economic story and a moral story, in fact, as well, about what's acceptable in the European Union. Okay, let's open it out to some, some questions. Now, I'm going to take a balance of questioners, and you're all going to help me in that regard, which you're not doing at the moment. Um, so I'll leave you to pause on that thought as I choose the first questioner, and you put your hand up first of all. And I'm going to take that question first of all, and by the time I come back, you're going to give me a lot of choice about questioners. So we can... Am I going to take this one at a time? Uh, we'll, we'll take this one, and then okay. we'll come back. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, great, great talk. A good reminder to us all of the situation. The, and um, plausible, but I think you've gone a step too far in roping in NATO, saying because the political side, the economic side, which is after all a desire, a desire to do well, yeah, there is something else on the other side, which Orban, for instance, feels, which is a fear, a fear of Russia, a fear of instability. I don't think, I'm wondering whether the culture, the culture of NATO is something very difficult to the political class. Is NATO really yeah, as, I, at risk, as you said? Well, one of my reasons for saying that is I've spent the last five years, much of the last five years, running a thing called the European Leadership Network, where we which is a network of former prime ministers, foreign ministers, defence secretaries, diplomats, senior military people. During the co course of doing that, it became clear to me just precisely how weak uh, the solidarity is in NATO. I'll get, and I'll give you an example. I mean, we were actually asked on one occasion if we would host a debate bringing together former ministers and senior advisors and so on about how NATO's approach to Russia should develop. And the rationale for us being asked was that it was too toxic an argument to have inside the alliance itself. And they wanted us to organize it privately so that the arguments could be tested out and we could see where the debate went. Now, there is a huge amount of division in NATO underneath the surface of statements, you know, communiques that say it's all very solid. There are huge disagreements. In Eastern Europe, they do not trust the Italians and countries nearby uh, Italy as far as they can throw them. In Italy, there's huge anger at what they see as the lack of solidarity from other parts of, the, uh, of other parts of Europe for dealing with the migration crisis. Also, I would just say to you that although everybody talks about Article 5 in NATO, which is the one where people make the commitment to defend each other in the event of one country being attacked, there is an Article 2 in which the founders of the treaty explicitly understood the importance of the economic conditions for peace, where they commit to work for the economic, for the economic conditions for peace. And my argument in this book is if the European Union collapses, if it's brought down by the Eurosceptics and populists, it's a direct attack on the economic foundations of peace in Europe. Okay, let's 
Let's go back to the audience. I'm going to take this lady here first. I'm going to take that lady and then this gentleman. We'll take a round of three. Thank you. I'll go to this lady here first. I'm sorry. Um, a very, very convincing argument, but I'm so depressed and you're so pessimistic. <laughs> now, you asked for solutions. Now, one of these, obviously, clearly, is that Trump doesn't stay in office. Now, that I don't know what the possible ways of getting rid of him are. Um, <laughs> uh, but that... Poison in the shoe polish. No, but, <laughs> but he gets worse and worse. And it, it must be that... Um, people like that will fall. The next question is something that you've kind of said can't happen, which is one of the things that would help Europe, I think, is if we remain. And you've sort of said kind of thing, that's not going to happen because you said when we leave or something like that, that, those words which I hate, hopefully Britain might be able, with its influence, I mean, hopefully. I mean, we're not hated that much. There's the question of we're hated so much in Europe, maybe, because we've been making such a, a fuss and, and so on, and it's interfered with their other issues. But they're saying that the issue of Brexit is now way, way down their concerns, as you've suggested. So that's number two possibility. Great, thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's good. I'll go to this one, then I'm going to come to you uh, straight away. You've got a European Union flag on your T-shirt. I guess I know where you're going to come from. But <laughs> I'm not satisfied with wearing my heart on my sleeve. I wear it on my torso. <laughs> um, you painted a chilling... This is a wonderful lecture. Thank you very much. You painted a chilling and chillingly persuasive and plausible account of all the dangers and the clear and present dangers that there are to the EU. I'm about to go on a march on the October the 23rd, I think, in favour of the EU, a slogan, the slogan, let's have a counter-cyclical economic policy, is not the catchiest in the world. Could you list, and it's probably very unfair of me to ask you to do this, and you may well do it in your book, can you just list some of the things that I should be focusing on and, and urging my compatriots and very fellow marchers to focus on to save the situation? Thank you. And then uh, this lady here. Thank you. Um, are you right to put China in with America and Russia? It seems to me that although, of course, it's not liberal democracy, it might be an agent in the world for more stability. They certainly don't seem to welcome the opposite. Um, and they have themselves sort of moved forward into the space that uh, America has vacated on, say, the issue of global warming. They seem to be sort of stepping towards that um, and anyway that's great thank you thank you very much so let me take that one first I think this, the scenario that I see developing if the EU were to collapse is that um, the EU has been one of the things it has done very well is it's been it served as a pole of attraction for countries that are not in it but who see uh, being part of it as being you know um, if you like part of their post-communist identity and a return to the European family um, and what that has meant is that in preparing for membership, membership bids and so on, they've been forced to take on board the acquis communautaire and do a lot of things, changing their legal systems and all kinds of things. With the European Union gone, that will no longer be a pole of attraction. Already, there are, uh, in Budapest, they, they describe China as the eastern opening. There is, the Chinese money will be pouring in, it already is. It's buying up important infrastructure in Greece and elsewhere. And um, I've already noticed that in certain UN votes, some of the countries in Eastern Europe actually don't really side with Western European votes uh, when they're told by the Chinese not to, because they know where some of the money's coming from, and they don't want to queer the relationship there. So what I'm saying about China is that it's not the same as America, it's not the same as Russia, but what it is is not, uh, it's not a supporter of liberal politics. It's no friend of the European Union's values, and it would be a weak, and it would be a an influence which would be, you know, undermining to those values. And if you look... Um, it may wish it economically, uh, but politically I would say, look at what China has done in Africa. You know, I mean, you, you, you can do whatever you want on human rights in Africa and do deals with China. They don't care, as long as they're getting out of it what they want. I just think we need to be clear-eyed about that. Um, Yes, uh, what do we want, a counter-cyclical fiscal policy? When do we want it in now? You know, uh, I, I kind of... <laughs> um, you know, I, I get that. But I think the, 
the blunter message is that it's time to return power to national capitals. It's time to return much more of the management of economic policy to national capitals. And that's what fiscal policy, uh, a decentralized fiscal policy would do. See, so the argument about against it is that you'd have all countries, you know, not just basically using the same currency, but running whatever spending deficits they wanted, and it'd all be a kind of chaotic picture, which is why you need some mechanism in a treaty to try and get a sort of sensible fiscal policy for the whole of the Eurozone. But that is where the decentralized mechanism comes in. You know, if you're growing, cut back on spending. If you're in a recession, don't do austerity. It's madness. You know, use fiscal policy to stimulate the economy. Um, so that's kind of how I would de describe it. But to connect that to the first, first question on solutions, like I think, you know, there is that, and I, I do stress that that issue of the management of the economy is crucial politically. If we don't get these countries off out of the narrow band they're allowed to operate in, you know, by decentralizing fiscal policy, we will not open up mainstream politics again as looking like it's a domain where people can have serious disagreements and offer alternative visions of the future. So that is important. But um, I think on migration, you, it's hard to see the Europeans agreeing how to manage it internally. So the obvious strategy to go for, and, and let me say, I, you know, it ought to be possible for, the, uh, uh, for a, a vehicle the size of the European Union, 500 million plus, to take in large numbers of refugees and migrants without it causing this much trouble. I mean, if they were distributed across the area. The fact that we're not able to do that tells us something really negative about where our politics is in terms of being welcoming, particularly since we've got a demographic challenge and we need more people. But um, given that you can't sort it out internally, then you have to do a common policy externally. I think, in shorthand, a kind of martial aid for North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, so that these people actually have more of a future where they are would be sensible. And if I did actually say, yes, when we leave, all I would say to that is I'm as passionately in favor of a people's vote as you are. So, last question. Does Britain need the EU more, or does the EU need Britain more? Quick answer. We need the European Union more. Okay, great. On that note, we're going to finish. Look, we've barely scratched the surface of this, honestly, and this could have gone on for a, a lot longer. The book is packed full of, of, of insight and evidence. Please buy it. Please read it. Ian's going to be at the back of the foyer signing uh, a few copies. But for now, thank you, um, Ian Cairns. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.